Tonight's Bible reading is Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2. This can be found on page 1198 of the Church Bibles. That's page 1198. What must be taught to various groups? You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Let's pray pray and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a speaking God. Thank you that it's a privilege to read your word this evening. Please help us to see it as such, and please help us to, to listen in a way that leads to doing. Protect us from letting it go in one ear and come out the other. Amen. Amen. Um, So tonight we're rejoining the book of Titus that we've been going through the last couple of weeks um, in the summer series that we're doing. And we've seen that it's a letter from Paul to his protege um, on Crete, uh, giving him various different instructions. He's already had uh, some of these instructions. You might remember in verse 5 of chapter 1, Titus is to appoint godly leaders um, who are to lead the church in Crete, where he's based. Well, last week we saw the the sort of tail end of chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. Uh, Titus and these leaders, they're to refute error and refute those who teach these errors. And tonight um, we're going to see that Titus has given us a few more instructions uh, from Paul um, in these verses. You can see them there in verse 1, verses 7 and 8, and verse 15. Let me read them out quickly, uh, one after the other, um, so we catch them. 
You, Titus, must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. In everything, set them, the the people in the church, um, an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us. These, then, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. It's quite simple, really, isn't it? When you see them sort of side by side, there's a few things that Paul's calling Titus to do. Firstly, he's to teach sound doctrine. Um, It's that healthy gospel message, as opposed to the the disease teaching of the false teachers that we saw last week and looked at. And as he teaches this healthy gospel message, this sound doctrine, um, he's to do it with integrity and dignity and the authority given by God himself. And as he goes about uh, teaching and doing it in this kind of a way, Titus is to model godly character and exhort others to imitate him as he does that. And the way that Paul um, calls Titus to do these things is uh, by addressing different groups within the church here in Crete. Um, Paul tells Titus how these groups ought to behave. He tells them and and reminds them uh, what accords with sound doctrine. Um, You might remember right at the start of the letter in verse 1, after all, they're centered around the truth, the gospel that leads to godliness. And so Paul, as he he talks about this, he's he's showing what right relationships should look like, um, the knowledge of the truth that should lead to godly right relationships. And so we get it in the form of um, what is sort of a, a household code, if you like, Um, Paul thinks through the Christian's lifestyle in terms of their basic relationships. And we're going to see it in five different categories as we go through. But as Paul addresses each of these different categories, these different relationships um, within the household of God, his point is there ought to be an ironclad link between what they believe on the one hand and then how it plays out in their lives on the other. Um, There should be an ironclad link between their faith and then what it looks like in action. And so let's, let's dive in. Let's have a look at uh, these groups one by one and just see uh, what Paul says, the, they, how they ought to live. So firstly, in verse 2, have a look at it with me. Uh, Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. It's worth, as we get going, just pointing out this is a slightly different word from uh, the, the elder word in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5. Um, it's not really talking about leaders here. It's literally men who are older um, that Paul's talking about. Um, now, it might depend you know, who you're with as to whether you see yourself as an older man or a younger man here tonight. Um, I sort of uh, was reading this week that according to the Greek thinker, uh, Hippocrates, he had seven different categories, uh, seven different stages of age. And the oldest, the one after which there is no further age that you can reach, was 56 so interpret that how you will. Um, I said that this morning. There was a big joke because, ha, 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 how young, um, 56. A lot of you just then were like, whoa, 56. That is flipping old, isn't it? Um, again, uh, it depends on who you're with as to whether you're young or old in your own eyes. But if, if you are sat here and you're a younger man, you definitely don't think you're older, don't switch off because surely this is going to be your ambition as you grow up, right? This is what you want to grow up to be like um, in, in the faith. And ladies, don't switch off either, um, because although it's not talking to or about you directly, surely you want to be praying this for the men in your church, right? And that's true of all these different groups that we're going to be looking at. Um, Don't switch off if it's not talking directly to you. 
pray this for the people around you. Pray this. that uh, We'll see more and more of this as we go through. So what are older men to be like? Um, firstly, they're to be temperate or uh, sober-minded. Um, it's, it's, it's not so much talking about uh, literal temperance, like sort of staying off the booze. Um, Paul's talking about the kind of clear-headedness that comes from being sober, which I think he fleshes out in different ways. Um, particularly in the next thing, he, he says they're meant to be men who are worthy of respect, men who are dignified, venerable, august, uh, you know, the kind of man who inspires admiration. What else? They're to be self-controlled. Um, they're to be men who are ruled by wisdom. It's got that sort of sense. Men who keep their heads. Men who aren't sort of pushed about by peer pressure, uh, driven by what others think, or worried about how they stack up against other people. Nor are they to be people who are driven by impulses either. Uh, bouts of anger, feeling irritable, craving a drink, uh, needing to take yourself off to hit a golf ball. Um, they're not to be like that. They're to be ruled by wisdom, self-controlled. And they're to be sound in faith, love, and endurance. Healthy in all of those respects. In many ways, these older men, they're to be the backbone of the church. Because along with their sort of physical maturity, um, there's this expectation there, isn't there? That there's to be a spiritual maturity, a mature biblical understanding, a mature grasp of the gospel. This is what older men ought to be. Gents, it's worth clocking this. How about the next group? Older women. Have a look down at me at verses 3. Yeah, let's stick with verse 3 for now. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. What are they to be like, first thing? Well, the first thing they're to be like is to be reverent in behavior. Um, and that's a slightly clunky phrase, isn't it? It might not be immediately obvious. It's this sense of being in the presence of God, of living in God's presence, and so acting rightly. It's got that sort of feel of, do you remember Anna in Luke's Gospel, who sort of lived amongst the temple courts and sort of praised him and worshipped him every day? It's that sort of feel. Um, they're to be reverent in behavior, not out of control. Not slaves to much wine, as it sort of literally means. Um, not to have tongues that are loose and sort of firing at other people. All the women are to be reverent in behavior. What else are they to be like, though? They're to teach what is good. Now, first and foremost, this isn't, a, a, I think, what Paul's getting at here. It's a sort of a lifestyle example kind of teaching. He's not really sort of touching on a formalized classroom from the front kind teaching. Um, That's almost certainly not what Paul was thinking as he was writing this stuff down. Although there is space for that and we can talk about that. Um, But no, the kind of teaching that's going on here is the kind of teaching that takes place in the way that women in the church rub shoulders with one another, um, learn from one another, give to one another. And notice it's, it's an active thing. This, this, uh, this teaching. Um, and it's the younger women that they're to teach. So let's, let's move on with that and look at them too, because you'll see how these two um, categories are so interlinked. So have a look down with me again at verse 4. Uh, then they, the older women, can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to the husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. What are the older women to teach the younger women? They're to teach them, firstly, to be husband lovers, right? 
Um, it might be that uh, a husband and a wife, they've agreed that uh, they're going to work really hard to afford that house in, in Chinham or Hook, or if you're really going for it, Old Basing, maybe. But probably she didn't agree that he was going to go out before breakfast, come back after dinner, fall asleep every single night in front of the TV with the remote glued to his hand. Because let's face it, us men, we're not easily lovable. We're prone to adolescence, overbearingness, or on the other end, we can be totally too passive, can't we? Um, Lots of you know that I got married very recently. Uh, If two months of marriage has taught me anything, it's that actually there are plenty of reasons why I'm really hard to love. Sam, over there, will need plenty of help to love me as time goes on. So older ladies, please help her. Um, And this is particularly relevant... This is particularly relevant in a time where the answer to relationship troubles is you do you. We live in an age and and, and a moment where when life gets hard, oh yeah, maybe you should think about getting divorced. But no, teach them to be husband lovers. The next thing is, is that the older women are to teach the younger women to be children lovers. Because children, let's face it, they can be hard to love too. We've got plenty of teenagers here tonight. We've got plenty of parents of teenagers here tonight, or former teenagers. And they are experts at being hard to love, right? Um, How many times, parents, have you um, had your teenager say, oh, I just don't want to talk to you ever again, and sort of shove in their headphones? Has that happened? Um, Another thing teenagers are great at, rolling their eyes. You guys, you teenagers, are brilliant at just rolling your eyes, and sort of going, oh, how do I get parents that are such idiots? Um, slamming doors, that's another real skill of teenagers. Slamming doors. What do you do as a parent when your teenage son or daughter slams their door and yells through it, I hate church and I hate God and I'm not going with you? What do you do? The other age of the spe- end of the age spectrum is hard too, isn't it? Um, you know, you, you can think of uh, the 2 a.m. times where there's kicking and screaming and liquid coming out of both ends. That's hard to love a child at that point, isn't it? Um, there, there could be the, the little toddler having a tantrum because their older sibling has leftover pizza that they're eating and they're, they're kicking off, but they already ate their pizza and it's the worst thing in the world and they're screaming at them. Um, or more seriously, sometimes mums can take their baby home from hospital And they're not even sure if they like it. It's rare, but it does happen. What on earth do you do then? It's horrible for everyone concerned. Well, the answer, in part at least, is this wonderful picture that Paul's beginning to paint here. The picture of the arm around the shoulder. The older woman coming alongside the younger and saying, do you know what? I almost despaired when X did Y. But let me tell you how I lived through it. Let me tell you what we've done. Let me tell you how we prayed. Let me tell you about the grace of God. Let me listen for a while. Let me encourage you. Some people will take these two instructions in particular and, and say that it's, it's a bit of an evil imposition. Uh, you know, chauvinistic men, they're trying to downtread women, put them in their place. But I don't think that this passage is saying that, um, in fact, more than that, this passage is not saying that each and every woman should be married and should have children. That's not what it's saying at all. But I think we need to recognize as we see these instructions that that is the general majority norm for most women in most times and places. But that's certainly not all that the older women are to teach the younger. 
Let's have a look at the other things too. Have a look at verse 5. They're to be self-controlled. Teach them to be self-controlled. Again, that those lives lived under wisdom. They're to be pure, innocent, blameless, morally pure. They're to be busy at home. Again, it's not saying give up the day job. Um, it's, it's trying to encourage this, this wise life. Like the woman from the end of Proverbs, chapter 31, right? The woman who's, you read that description of her. She's strong. She's active. She's meeting needs. She's respected in her community. She's productive. That's what you're to teach the, the younger women to do. What else? Um, teach them to be subject to their husbands or submissive to their husbands. It's worth just saying a note as well. It's submissive to their own husbands, not other people's husbands. So we need to make sure we've got that right among us. And again, that might sort of make us wince a little bit in 2023. But before you wince, or perhaps after, it might be too late, just, just have a think. This, that's, Paul isn't trying to squish people down here. Rather, he's, he's trying to encourage a godly thing, a beautiful thing, a thing that harkens back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, the way that their marriage was before sin entered the world. He wants to cultivate a church where women are ready to love their husbands the same way they love Christ and his headship. The next group, younger men, verse 6. Have a look at it with me. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. It's only one thing. I mean, that's quite striking, isn't it? it's, It's pretty fascinating that Paul's word to young men is, don't worry about all the rest, be self-controlled. I will leave you to make your own conclusions about what that says about young men. Um, but did you notice that actually that is the sort of common thread to each of these groups so far? It's, it's perhaps slightly more in the background of older women there. But self-control is, is the thing that each of these groups, the in- instructions, have in common. And so a fair question might be to ask, where am I out of control in my life? It might be your wallets. Perhaps you just can't stop spending It might be your diary. Maybe you're always busy. You've got no time for people, certainly no time to spend on my own with God. It might be my eating. It could be my gossip. I'm compelled to sort of share and dish up stuff I've heard, or I just need to chase down the the sort of latest info. It could be my sexuality. It could be my work. Um, Perhaps I'm lazy or a workaholic. It could be my pornography use. It could be my driving. It could be my fantasies and imagination constantly sort of taking me off. Where am I out of control? in my life. That might be a fair diagnostic to ask, mightn't it? Slaves. Have a look at me with verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Now, again, it's, it's, we see the word slave, and we might wince again in 2023, but um, the time Paul's writing into, uh, almost a third of the Roman Empire would have been in slavery at the time. Not saying that makes it okay, but it's a different sort of state that he's writing into, and I think we've got to recognize that. But what does he instruct them to do? How does he instruct them to live? Um, how ought they to live uh, as slaves while they're in that state? Well, they're to be submissive to their masters, Again, this is sort of similar idea, isn't it, as going on with uh, wives to husbands. Um, because slaves delight to submit to Jesus as their master, so they should delight to submit to their masters. They're not to be argumentative. They shouldn't talk back. 
they're not to pilfer. So no stealing the boss's time or the, his resources. Instead, they're to prove themselves trustworthy. Now, it might be that, that as we've gone through this list of these different groups, um, you join in with uh, various people who say, these verses, they're just no longer relevant. We should rewrite them for the 21st century. But I think before we sort of say that, we've got to recognize that these words, these instructions, these ways that the church were to live were countercultural in the first century as well. Just remember, uh, have a look back at verse 12 of chapter 1. You get an insight there into the culture in Crete at the time. This is totally out of step with that. And this, this way of living is countercultural in every culture and in every century. It is confronting. It does get us to ask questions about ourselves and what we believe uh, sort of good life is. But actually, when you see it in action, the dignity and the beauty of the, these kind of relationships, this kind of a church family, it can't be spoken against. And so the question is, when we see these things, whether we like them or not, are we really going to take them seriously? Which brings us to verse 11, and we see that word for. Now, I know lots of us know this, but whenever you see the word for in the, in the New Testament letters in particular, alarm bells should be ringing. Um, it's, it's, it's a massive because. Why is it that Paul wants this changed behavior in the church in Crete? We're about to see the reason. Because the gospel, it is about changing people. It is about forgiving people, yes, don't, don't hear me wrong. But it is actually also about changing people. And there are two ways that you and I like to sort of pursue change and try and bring it about in our lives. I wonder which sort of direction you tend towards. I suspect we're a model of each, uh, to be honest. But on the one hand, you've got effort. Like I like to sort of sort of screw myself up and be like, right, I'm going to make myself a bunch of rules to follow. I'm going to print out like a little timetable to, to stick to. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to really try to become this kind of a person. But actually, that sort of way of thinking, it puts such a burden on us and so often is only going to leave us crushed. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got the sort of thing of, well, if God's going to change me, I should probably just let it happen, shouldn't I? You might have heard these phrases, you know, I don't need to do anything, just let go and let God. Or another one that you may have heard before, um, don't wrestle, just nestle. That's a bit bad, that one, isn't it? It's... uh, um, but that sort of way of thinking, it seems quite out of step. It's, it's out of kilter, isn't it, with the instructions here in Titus. So what is it? What's the for? What's the because? What's the thing that's going to sort of provoke change? Well, the thing that is, is going to change is actually two things. It's two appearings. Have a look down with me at verse 11. Um, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. And verse 13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will appear in glory. And so these two appearings, these two things, they mean change for Christians. Um, And it's a a different kind of change than we often think. Often we sort of think God sees us a bit like one of those topiary bushes, um, and he's going to get out his shears, and you know he's going to give us a short back and side, sort of bit here, bit off there, and make us look like a swan or whatever. Uh, That's not the kind of change that the Bible talks about. Um, These two appearings, they radically reorientate our entire lives. They don't trim us. They actually uproot us and change us totally. They train us to change rightly across these whole spectrum of relationships that we've sort of touched on and whizzed through tonight. So let's have a look at appearing number one. Appearing number one. 
Uh, Have a look at verse 11 with me. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So this appearing, this first appearing, uh, it's quite obvious, isn't it, the, the, the way that Paul's talking. It is the incarnation, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And how else does he describe it? It's the appearing that brings salvation. The penalty for, for sin, it brings salvation for that. It brings salvation to bring you into a rescue for eternal life of knowing God. How else is it described? It's described as grace. The grace of God appeared. It's something that's unmerited, undeserved, unwarranted, free, poured out because of God's love for you and for me. That's radically different from how you and I pursue change, isn't it? It's not be better, it's not do more, it's not slap yourself about. God has said, understand my grace has appeared. Grace says, come as you are, but it doesn't leave you as you are. Because it's not a sort of cheap surface level grace that has appeared. It is a deep and meaningful grace that has appeared that changes us completely. And so it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to renounce them, disown them. Jesus' gracious death means I'm dead to those things. It teaches us to to live self-controlled, upright lives in the present age, to embrace this sort of way of living, because Jesus' gracious resurrection means that I'm alive to good. It's grace that is the power of change in me. Which leads us to our second appearing, our second appearing. Have a look back down at me um, with verse 13. Um, sorry, verse 12. Uh, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Appearing number two, we wait for our blessed hope. So the great and glorious appearing of our uh, God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the Lord Jesus to come back. That's the second appearing that sort of brings about this change in us. Notice um, in verse 14, though, how Paul describes this Jesus who we're waiting to come back. He's the one who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness. We're rescued from wickedness. It's the sort of thing, like imagine a medieval dungeon. You know, it's slimy, it's gross, it's dingy, it's dark. Um, And you're locked up there. But someone comes along and they pay the price to get you out of that dungeon. You don't go back to the dungeon, do you? You've been redeemed from it. You've been rescued. It's that sort of a picture. How else does he describe the Jesus Christ who is returning? He's the one who is purifying a people. He is changing sinners into saints. He is the one who owns people. Do you see that in verse 14? People who are belonging to Jesus, possessed by Jesus, precious to him. And so do you see how these these appearings, this grace, this sound doctrine trains us? It redefines who we are. And that's all the more important, isn't it, in a culture that's so confused about all sorts of things, um, but especially confused about gender and what it looks like to be a man or a woman. These appearings, they redefine who we are. And 
do you see how that works as these two appearings interplay with one another? Why do I say no to sin? It's because I've been redeemed from wickedness. Why do I say yes to godliness? It's because I've been purified for Jesus. Why do I seek to please him? It's because I belong to Jesus. I'm owned by him. These two appearings, they redefine who we are by reminding us how we started by the Lord's gracious death for us and reminding us that actually we have an eternal purpose with him in the future as Christians. And did you notice, as, we, as we've read these verses, did you notice that that purpose, all these sort of groups of people are being transformed into? At the end of verse 14, do you, did you notice what it, what it is, what it's like? Have a look at it again with me. It's people who are eager to do good, zealous, passionate about doing good. It's a joy, it's not a drudgery, it's, it's not burdensome, it's not a chore. It's the kind of person that longs to see Jesus glorified, not reviled, verse 5. It's the kind of person who wants to adorn this gospel of God, this doctrine of God, verse 10, because they're living to adorn themselves with righteous acts, like a bride, getting herself ready, adorning herself ready for her husband. Now, if you don't feel that, if you've never felt that at at the thought of these two appearings, if it feels like just like water off a duck's back, Perhaps it's because you're brand new to church, in which case you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, or perhaps it all just feels, uh, feels incredibly familiar. Um, you know, it's the same old, same old. You know, we go to church, we hear about these things. Regardless, if you've never felt anything at these, the thing you need to do is receive this sound, healthy doctrine, the gospel of grace. If that's you, don't stay where you are. Have a chat to me, Tim, anyone that looks like they know what they're talking about afterwards. Let us introduce you to the, the Jesus who has appeared and will appear. If you are a Christian, keep going. If you are a Christian, let these two appearings permeate your life. Get them into your psyche. Get them into your life, uh, life so that your perspective changes. This grace, this doctrine, these appearings of Christ, they need to be taught. Did you notice that in verse 15? So as well as getting them into your own life, make sure that you're playing your part too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us the Lord Jesus in the past. Thank you that it's not something that we earn, but it is grace that he dies and rose again for us. Thank you that he is coming again to purify us completely, for us to be his own precious people. Thank you that that totally changes the way that we live now as we wait for that. Please help us to put these things into practice, we pray. Amen. Uh, Go through some of these questions. So thank you uh, for sending them in. Um, We're going to start... Uh, with this, how um, I think you, uh, this was submitted before you got to your final point, which addressed some of this, um, but perhaps you could summarize a bit. How do we differentiate spirit-driven self-control uh, from unhealthy over-control, legalism, kind of focusing on rules and that kind of thing? Mm. Um, 
I, yeah, I, I guess if, if it came in before we started talking about um, particularly <laughs> how it's, it's these two appearings and it's the grace of God that, that changes us as, as, we, as the Spirit imprints this new definition of who we are in the light of that perspective of Christ has come and is coming again, um, then, uh, then that, that's the difference, right? Um, how do we differentiate uh, sort of day by day? Like, potentially that's you sort of worried that, um, you know, as, as I try to sort of live better, um, that is just legalism. Um, I think probably if that's a worry of yours, you're probably on the right tracks because um, because if you were a pure legalist, you wouldn't really worry about that, would you? Um, I think I think get good people around you. If, if Titus two tells us nothing else, is that church isn't a sort of lone wolf adventure. Um, the Christian walk is not a lone wolf thing. Um, get good people around you and recognise that actually. Lots of us, maybe not all of us, lots of us are lovely little rule keepers inside that love to do this. And we'll probably venture back into that. So we need to be quick to repent where that's the case. Yeah, I think, you know, just throughout the Bible, um, where we get told how to live, it's always joined with what God's done mm. um, with the gospel. So, you know, here, we've talked about that today. There's instructions on what to do, but there's also the the appearings and mm. what God's done. And I think that is just the pattern throughout the Bible mm. and a good pattern for us to keep to, to um, keep that balance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great. Um, let's go for um, this question, um, which is uh, helpful to, to talk about, I think. Uh, as an unmarried woman, where do I fit into this vision of the church? Um, there's lots of talk about uh, husbands and mm. children um, that might are they left out? Sure. Um, no, please. And I'm going to say that again. No, you're not left out. Um, if you are an unmarried or childless woman, that does not mean that you are less than. Does not mean you're not part of the church. And I cannot say that loudly enough. Um, I do un- understand and appreciate, though. Um, you sort of hear a sort of ream of instructions or sort of things of like this is how things ought to be. Um, I, th- I think we need a bit of grace and love in either direction, don't we? It's very hard for the single person um, in that situation, but it is also not untrue that there are wives and mothers amongst us. Um, I think that there, there are plenty of things in there that actually, you know, the person to being a wife and a, and a mother, but are not exclusive to that, particularly that idea of self-control. Um, we need it. But also... Um, Expand your view of who you are and what you are within the church family. If if you are a woman in the church family, then you are a sister. You are a mother to your brothers and sisters, and yeah, within church family, um, it doesn't have to be your biological nuclear family that this applies to. In fact, I'd like to suggest probably this is talking much more widely than that, and has quite a lot less emphasis on what does this look like within a family unit and more. What does it look like within the big family unit? Great. And perhaps uh, similarly to something not talked about, um, why is there no reference to how men can be honouring their wives uh, and how the older men can be encouraging them to do this? Mm. Be focused on the women. Um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I mean, p- potentially, it is partly that the young men need to hear that one thing. Um, again, like I, I say it slightly in jest, but 
Um, I th- you know, we're both relatively young, are we, Tim? Like, maybe not some of these, but anyway. Um, we, we, we perhaps can only focus on one thing. Um, but no, more seriously, more seriously. Um, yeah, there isn't reference to that here, but pick another book of the New Testament. It's very clear that that is to take place. Um, yeah, it's not referenced here, but it totally is elsewhere. Yeah, great. Uh, where are we going? So um, we're going to uh, perhaps finish with this one. Um, there's two questions which I'm, well, uh, I'm going to combine. But um, how do we? You, you talked about um, that perhaps the slaves and things like that mm. um, is uh, a particularly cultural thing. We wouldn't say that that's um, saying that slavery is good. Um, but other, other bits of this we clearly applied to ourselves now. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we know which bits of the Bible are universal truths uh, and which are culturally specific? Mm. Yeah, I think um, it's a complicated question. And <laughs> you're right to answer, ask it, and it's, it's, it's telling that we've got it in a couple of different ways and forms. Um, I think that uh, particularly sort of here, um, you can say, okay, slavery doesn't exist in the same way it did in the Roman Empire. Um, so, no, that is not relevant in the same way. It, you know, there's not a one-for-one likeness um, today. Um, but it's not a million miles away from being an employee, say. Um, so there's, there's truth to be taught from it. Um, however, we definitely do still have older men and older women and younger men and younger women. So um, there's part of that that, you know, in some ways there's nothing new under the sun. Stuff doesn't change as much as perhaps we like to think it does. Um, but, yeah, how, how do we sort of pass out those two things? I think part of the way is through what happens in Titus 2. The church isn't sort of a weird historical thing that we've only just dug up. You've got men and women throughout ages um, teaching the gospel to one another, teaching it in different times and different places. And as we've said tonight, this is countercultural and confronting in every culture and at every time, um, particularly here in Crete, I think particularly here today. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's, it's not that uh, we can just write stuff off and say, oh, no, we don't need to think about that anymore. Um, all of Scripture is useful for teaching. Yeah, and I guess, you know, we want to start with uh, the Gospel, don't we, and the, um, the Gospel story throughout the whole Bible um, and... Uh, you know, God's salvation, um, and then uh, look at, use that as the lens for how we look at our culture, how we look at the culture that the Bible writers were um, looking at, um, and, yeah, use that to help us work out um, perhaps some of these questions. Mm. Uh, But, uh, because, yeah, the gospel's going to, the gospel is the same throughout the ages, uh, but the impact it's going to have is perhaps um, it's going to it's going to highlight some things differently in different cultures, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's somewhere to start, I guess. Great, thank you, Alex. Thanks for uh, helping us with those. Um,